Hear now from Hebrews 7, the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. In verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Perhaps you have had that dream that we all dread, that dream of showing up at work or at school with no pants or in some way unprepared, and what they tell us that dream points to is a feeling or fear of inadequacy. That I am not good enough. That I will be shamed. That I don't fit in. That I'm not ready. That I don't belong. Much of our lifelong efforts are spent trying to address that problem. Because we all feel out of place. We all feel inadequate. We all feel like we don't belong in fact, that, that hymn that we just sang, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, written by a man named William Cowper, who struggled his life long with that feeling of inadequacy, that feeling of not being good enough. And though he wrote many beautiful, moving, powerful hymns and, and, and understood the depth of God's mercy, yet he still struggled even to the point of attempting to take his own life several times, struggled to feel like he was right before God and that he belonged. And that's why we need to care about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is one of those long and hard to pronounce Bible names that we don't often give to our children. Uh, and so we don't often think of Melchizedek when we think of great figures from Scripture. And it should come with a warning that we are entering into a different world with a different way of thinking about things as we look at these verses. And so before we jump into it, I want to just address the question of, of why should we care about Melchizedek? Why does the author of Hebrews bring him up and what's the big deal? If you've been tracking with us as we've been studying Hebrews, you'll remember that it was being written to a group of Christians in the first century in the Roman Empire who had converted from Judaism to following Jesus. And as a result, they were being uh, prohibited from worshiping with their fellow Jews. 
They were being excluded from the community life. They were losing their jobs. They were being imprisoned. They were losing their family. They were being persecuted. And as a result, they were starting to think maybe it's not worth it. And as Rome had given sanction to the Jewish faith to practice uh, their faith instead of emperor worship, but had not given the same approval to the Christians, they were beginning to think maybe it's safer and better for us to go back to the, the way we used to know, to the priesthood and the temple and the sacrifices of the Old Testament that God himself had prescribed. Would this not be better? After all, it's safer. But following Jesus meant leaving behind the sacrificial systems of the Old Testament, which was how sins for ages upon ages, how a guilty conscience had been cleansed. How, how insecurity and unworthiness and that feeling of not being right, how that was put to rest. So aside from being a familiar and comforting way of life, aside from being safer and approved, it was, it was the very heart of salvation for first century Jews. The temple, the sacrifice, and above it all, the priests. Now that probably isn't your situation this morning, but nonetheless, it is true that all of us are seeking after a salvation that is effective and enduring, that does not fail and that will not end. You might not think of it as salvation or use the word justification, but that's still what your heart is seeking after. It's recognizing your need for righteousness, your need to, to belong, to not be out of place, to not show up unprepared and inappropriate. We feel that sense of being out of place and needing to be made right because it's the root of, of what separates us from our maker. The sin that separates us from our maker is the root of that feeling of not being up to par, of not being good enough, of being the only amateur player on a field full of professionals, of being an imposter, of needing to in some way compensate for my inadequacies. The root of that is the sin that separates us from our maker. And because our sin separates us from God, every person spends their life trying to feel accepted so that they can feel at peace. Every person spends their life trying to feel accepted so that they can feel at peace. And we seek that in a million different ways. We seek it in popularity. We seek it in romantic relationships. We seek it in having the right kind of family. We seek it in success in sports or the arts or school or a career. We want to be accepted because we want to be at peace. And we want that because in our hearts we know that we have been separated from our creator and maker. Every other problem that plagues us in life is really an expression of that one main issue. And the only solution to that issue is not to succeed in sports or academics or our career or relationships or whatever else we are pursuing acceptance through. The only solution is to be made right with God, which requires that our sin be dealt with, which is why God gave the priesthood and the sacrifices to point to how sin would be made right. And the job of the priest is to bring people back to God through sacrifice and prayer. The priest has the job of leading people back to God through sacrifice and prayer. 
So while you might not be worried as the original audience of Hebrews is, you might not be worried about the complications of abandoning the Levitical priesthood. Oh no, that's not probably foremost on your heart, but you are nonetheless concerned with making sure that you have received a comfort that effectively and continually makes you acceptable, makes you welcome, makes you feel right. And if you are sincere in looking to follow God, there's another layer of complication that the author of Hebrews wants to address. The priests and the sacrifices of the Old Testament were in fact commanded by God and should not be lightly set aside. We cannot just pick another method of being made right before him. And so the author of Hebrews takes us to just two chapters in the Old Testament, one from Genesis and one from the Psalms, to show us that God has revealed to his people hints of an even better priesthood than the ones that existed in the Levitical priesthood. A priesthood that was more exalted so it cannot fail us. And a priesthood that was eternal so it would never end. And the ministry of Jesus for me and for you falls under that new priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. A priesthood that gives us eternal and effective comfort of God that he promises for his people. This perfect priest is for us both the source of righteousness, that feeling of being acceptable and being made right that you need, and also the source of peace, of being made right with God and knowing that that comfort cannot be taken away from you. And so let's look at those two aspects of the priesthood of Jesus, it is a comfort that cannot fail and a comfort that will not end. First, a comfort that cannot fail. The author of Hebrews spends a lot of time demonstrating how Melchizedek, this obscure figure from the Old Testament, who only pops up twice, how he is better than the other kind of priests and therefore how what Jesus does is better for our salvation. So we look at Genesis 14. The the entire story of Melchizedek is in Genesis 14, 17 through 20. After Abraham's return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, so, so Abraham had gone and fought a battle to rescue Lot when he had been kidnapped when a bunch of kings went to war. And Abraham, with his 316 men from his household, went up and fought against these other kings and defeated them, rescued Lot, and then came back from battle. And as he's coming back, it says, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram, in response, gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he got. From this little bit of information, and that's the whole story of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. From that little bit of information, the author of Hebrews notices two things primarily. Number one, the meaning of Melchizedek's name. Hebrews 7, verse 2, the author says, Melchizedek is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. The name Melchizedek, Melchizedek in the Hebrew, does indeed translate to king of righteousness or righteous king. And the word Salem has the same root as shalom and means peace. 
So he's got this awesome rocking name. He is, his name means king of righteousness, and his title is king of peace, which brings to mind Isaiah chapter 9, the prophecy of the Messiah whose name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So this Melchizedek is a unique figure because he is a, a priest of God Most High, but he's also a king with a really cool name. A name that points to what we need. Righteousness to be made acceptable and peace to feel that comfort that we have been brought back to God. It's a name that points to what we're truly looking for. So that's the first thing we see about him. His name points to our need and our desire for righteousness and for peace. But the second thing the author sees in this story, not only does he have a really cool name, but he's even greater than Abraham, which to Jewish Christians receiving this letter was hard to imagine anyone greater than Abraham in the Old Testament. Abraham was the dude. He was the patriarch. He was the friend of God. He was the one who had received all the promises that God would bless the nations through him. In Hebrews 7, verse 4, the author says, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. That Abraham looked to him and said, I need to give to you. And then Hebrews 7 goes on to make an even longer argument that I'll, I'll spare you this morning, which is that Melchizedek, because Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, then Melchizedek is greater even than the Levites who were descendants of Abraham, the priests of the Old Testament covenant. So since, he's, since the case has been made that Melchizedek is exalted, he is superior. He is different than the other types of priests. Let's see what that says about Jesus and what it means for us. So in thinking about the ways that we seek to be made right and to find peace, to settle that, that voice that tells us you are not worthy, you are not good enough. Even though the Old Testament system of laws and sacrifices were were good and right and given by God, the author of Hebrews claims in verses 18 and 19, on the one hand, the former commandment, the laws, the temple, the animal sacrifice, the priesthood, is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So we have a problem. Our desire, our need, and our plan to make God happy and to draw near to him by making sacrifice and following his commandments is unsuccessful because we can't keep it perfectly. And even if we did, it was never meant to actually take away our guilt. As we're going to see in a few weeks as we continue to go through Hebrews, the blood of an animal sacrifice can't actually take away your guilt. It's meant instead to point to what can take away your guilt and resolve that unsettled feeling in your soul, which is the work of Jesus. And so we have Jesus, a priest like Melchizedek, verse 26. 
It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's describing Jesus as the one who is superior, who is better. And like Melchizedek, a priest who is both a king of righteousness and of peace. And then he describes the difference that that makes for us. Verse 27 and 28. Jesus has no need, like other priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did not, or since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What this means for you, child of God, is that the law, obedience, morality, sacrifices, things you do, or any other means that you could imagine or devise, any way of making yourself acceptable, worthy, justified, any way of quieting the insecurity and fear and restlessness of your heart, it is not up to the job. It can't do it. Even the priesthood itself that God established could not do it. What makes you think that that number in your bank account, that relationship you're striving for, that lifestyle you're pursuing, that job you're working towards, none of it is up to the job of quieting a heart that feels unsettled. It's like the first time I tried to explain credit cards to one of my children. This was fun. They were very young at the time. And I'm not allowed to say which of my children these stories are about anymore. They're getting to that age where they don't like me saying who it is. I was trying to explain to one of my children how credit cards worked because they thought, you know, well, Dad, we, we want to get this. Can't you just put it on the credit card? And I'd say, no, no, well, you know, using the credit card, I still have to pay for it. Well, why? Well, when, you, when I, at the restaurant and we give them the credit card, I'm not actually paying for it. The bank is paying for it, and then I've got to pay the bank. And so my child looks at the credit card, and at the, we were at, the rest, at a restaurant at the time, and I'm trying to, you know, on the spot explain this. And my child says, so you haven't paid for anything. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Really, it's just an IOU. It's just me saying, I'll pay this later. And that's what's happening with these other things, even if they provide us a moment of comfort, a moment of peace, a moment of satisfaction. They're not paying for anything. They're just putting off the need to a later date until someone else can come in and pay our debt. But Jesus is exalted. He's better. He's greater. He's superior. He's made perfect forever. His work, His sacrifice, fully pays the debt. So when giving up His life on the cross to be punished in our place, Jesus in John 19 says these words, It is finished. And then He bows His head and gives up His spirit. What that means for me and you is that what we most need, what we most desperately seek, which is to be made right and acceptable and at peace, it's done. The, the debt has been paid. It's been settled. That's, that's actually literally what the words Jesus said on the cross means. It is finished, is tetelestai, which would be printed over a bill of debt to say paid in full. I still have somewhere on my computer the statement from mine and my wife's student loan companies saying this debt has been paid in full. 
What a glorious statement that is. And when I feel down, I'll sometimes pull that up and remind myself, my debt is paid in full. And that's what Jesus is saying. That debt that we had out there that kept us insecure, that separated us from God, that leaves us seeking acceptance and worthiness and righteousness is finished. It, it's paid in full. It is, you have, Christian, a comfort that cannot fail because you haven't just put off payment of the debt like with a credit card. It's actually already been paid. It'd be like there was a time and I don't know if my kids remember this because they were still young, but for one blessed 30 minutes at a restaurant up in Oviedo, Florida, my children were perfectly behaved. It was a blessed, unique alignment of the stars. I don't know how it happened. And some wonderful couple, unbeknownst to us, saw that, and before they left, they paid our bill and told the server to tell us, you have such wonderful children. It's never happened again, but... <laughs> I didn't have to put off the debt. Somebody came in and said, your debt is paid in full. To which my wife replied, did they cover dessert too? <laughs> they did, for the record. That's what's happened. Christ has come in and said, you have felt separated. You have felt wrong. You have felt inadequate. You have sought to be justified, to be made right, to be made uh, fixed. And I have paid that debt in full. I've done it. Your comfort cannot fail. That's what it means to have a priest like Melchizedek. He's better than anything that came before because he fully, completely, irrevocably pays in full your debt. And it is finished. That is a comfort that cannot fail. And when you have that kind of comfort, other things lose their power over you. Other things lose their appeal to you. That lifestyle that promised you, if you just become like this, if you just look like this, if you just act like this, if you just own this or live like this, they enslave you by taking advantage of your perpetual sense of insecurity and unworthiness. And once you recognize that it is finished and you have a comfort that cannot fail you, those things lose their power over you. And you gain power instead to live the life of one fulfilled. To have a cup that overflows so that you're not going around trying to help people pouring from your empty cup into their empty cup. But instead, the Lord fills your cup to overflowing and makes you a blessing to others. You have a comfort that cannot fail. The other thing we see is a comfort that will not end. Another way in which Melchizedek resembles Jesus in this passage, not only is he exalted and greater than anything else, but he is also eternal. And that gives us a comfort that will not end. Verse 3, the author of Hebrews looks at the passage and says, well, this Jesus or this Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. So when you read Genesis, the book of Genesis, there's a pattern that starts to stand out. For every significant character in Genesis, we get their genealogy, their backstory. In fact, that's what the word Genesis means. It means the origins. And so not only do we learn who their family is, but we also tend to learn how long they live. Every major figure, we get a genealogy and we get a lifespan. And the author of Hebrews notes that that doesn't happen for Melchizedek. He just shows up out of nowhere. No history, no family, no genealogy, no lineage. Blesses Abraham, receives a tenth of Abraham's spoils, and then he disappears from the story. 
So is the author of Hebrews saying that Melchizedek lived forever? No, he's not saying that. But he is saying that the way Scripture talks of Melchizedek does not end the priesthood or the life of Melchizedek. And so in that way, he resembles Jesus who conquered death. So Hebrews 7, 15 through 17, he says, this becomes even more evident. When another priest, Jesus, arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but he became a priest by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, and he's referencing here Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, now remember my warning. We're getting into a different world with different ways of talking and thinking about things and a different way of logic. And you might be getting a little tangled up in the logic of Hebrews here and struggling with the fact that it doesn't sound anything like what a 21st century Western author would say. And you're probably right. But in humility, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. And since we believe that the Holy Spirit gives us Scripture, we go a step further and ask what the Holy Spirit is telling us through these verses. The main idea is that the salvation we need to bring us true comfort is not a one-time thing. There is a sense in which it is final. It is finished. We are saved from our sins absolutely, completely forever. But there is also a sense clearly expressed in Scripture again and again that we are still being saved. You are already saved. You are now being saved and you still have yet to be saved. Scripture speaks of your salvation in all three tenses, past, present, and future. For example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Now, we would expect Paul to say, and by which you were saved. You were saved by the gospel. And he says that elsewhere. But he also says, you are being saved right now. We need to understand that in light of what we already saw. It is finished. The work of redemption is done. The debt is paid in full. The children of God are saved. Amen? Amen. But we still live in a world filled with spiritual war. And we have desires and we have habits that would pull us away from the obedience of God that we desire to live out. So what kind of savior would he be? If Jesus died for our sins, freed us, and then left us on our own to struggle and suffer for the rest of our days. And so in verses 23 and 24, we read that the former priests, the Levitical priests of the Old Testament, they were many in number because they were prevented from death, by death, from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So first, the author points out that one of the weaknesses of the old priesthood is that the priests would die. They had to be continually replaced year after year, like, like the Cleveland Browns quarterback. You know, just it, Every year, you need somebody else because the former one is not being effective. But even if you had a good priest, he wouldn't last because death would remove him from office. But the work of Jesus to bring us comfort and peace is going to last because not only is he holy, exalted, and perfect, but he carries on those qualities eternally. 
So as we look to Jesus, we're encouraged because he continues forever, which is true because he did not just rise from the dead, but he defeated death and lives forever. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. He defeated death and lives forever, which is what he promises to also make true of us. But there's more to it than that. Verse 25, and I just want you to leave the slide up for a little bit. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So because Jesus defeated death and endures forever, he is able to save us to the uttermost, which at first seems like he's saying, he does a really good job saving us. It's a very thorough salvation. Not a single sin is left unforgiven. And that's true, but that's not what the author means by that word uttermost. It says he saves us to the uttermost since he always lives to make intercession for us. The author of Hebrews describes the work of Jesus in saving us as something that's ongoing. It's still happening right now. Jesus is at this moment interceding for you, taking your part on your side, saving you. And it has to be that way because the journey isn't done. And he is no savior unless he gets us all the way home. And so that's what that word uttermost means. He saves us to the uttermost. It means to every end, covering every possibility, all the way, completely. Jesus doesn't just save you from the wrath of God and then say, good luck. Hope you do okay from here on out. I grew up for many years with that view of my salvation, and it left me in terror, it left me insecure, it made me a perfectionist, it made me fearful, and eventually it made me want to give up on the gospel. Because if he just forgives me once and then leaves me on my own for the rest of my days, that is no salvation. I need a Savior who saves me to the uttermost, who continually is interceding and taking my part. He always lives and is always making intercession for us, praying for us, delivering divine aid, strengthening us, providing for us, sheltering us. He is our guy in the chair. You know that, that phrase, that role? It's, uh, it's in, in superhero movies especially. You know, you've got the vigilante or the superhero and, and they always, almost always have a guy or a girl in the chair. It's that person who's behind the computer or usually they have like 18 computer monitors and they're able to see what's coming up behind you. They're monitoring the police scanners. They're, they're tracking the criminals. They've got GPS going on. They've got all the technology come to bear on the situation and they can see what's coming up behind you. They can see what danger you're about to face. They can even neutralize. They'll turn the stoplight red to keep the bad guys from getting to you. The, the guy or girl in the chair is on your side, watching every possibility, protecting you. That's what it means that Jesus is always living to intercede for us. He is always watching, even in an even more perfect way than any human monitor of a screen ever could they see everything that's coming he sees every possibility and he is always 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 watching out for you there is no way that anything can sneak up behind you surprise you from around the corner sweep the floor from under you or drop down from above jesus has every angle covered that's what it means when it says he saves you to the uttermost 
He has every angle covered. He is always present to help us. And so there is nothing that he does not save us from. Jesus is always present to help us, so there is nothing that he does not save us from. That's the kind of comfort that you need. That's the kind of salvation that you long for. It's not one that just gets you out of one big mess, but then leaves you on your own for the next one. It's a comfort that will not end, that is always there. And so when you have that comfort, let me ask you this. What would your life be like if all your insecurities and fears were removed? How bold would you be if you knew that nothing could bring you to eternal harm? How generous would you be if you knew that you would never suffer lack? How gracious and loving would you be? And yet that is exactly what God has said has taken place in Christ. He has saved you to the uttermost because he is a priest who lives forever and is always watching over you to save you. You are secure beyond your imagination. Let your life be a reflection, an indication of that. So children of God, that is why Melchizedek matters today. Because we all of us in various ways are insecure because our need for acceptance, our need for worthiness, and for the peace that acceptance brings leads us to seek comfort and to seek refuge in things whose comfort will fail and will in the end not endure. But Jesus, like Melchizedek, is unique. He is exalted and he is enduring. He is the king of righteousness and the king of peace, giving us the righteousness we need by making us acceptable and right through what he did at the cross and giving us the peace we desire by making us secure and at rest by being ever-present to help us. Jesus saves you to the uttermost. I'm going to conclude with these words, familiar words that I often bring us back to from Romans chapter 8. Listen to these verses that summarize for us being saved to the uttermost. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised. He is ever-living, making intercession. He is at the right hand of God, before the throne of God above. I have a strong plea. Who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger... Or sword, to that we could add, could depression, could addiction, could broken relationships, could financial insecurity, could social instability, could government ineptitude. Can anything, anything separate you from the one who ever lives to intercede and who saves you to the uttermost? No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, you desire that. Every other desire, every pursuit, every longing in your life comes back to that, that you want to be made right and be welcomed in the presence of God. And the good news is, that before the throne of God, you have a strong eternal plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and intercedes for you. Your name is graven on his hands 
Your name is written on his heart. And while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid you thence depart. Let us pray in joy and sing in rejoicing for our great high priest. Our heavenly father, thank you for this great high priest. One like Melchizedek that we don't understand or could not have imagined or planned, but one who meets our every need in ways that we could not have planned ourselves. We thank you for a comfort that cannot fail because it is finished and a comfort that will not end because he saves to the uttermost. We thank you that we have this in Jesus, our King of righteousness, our King of peace, our great high priest. In his name we pray because he prays for us. Amen.